Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Adam Henry is an artist born in Colorado and grew up in New Mexico. He received his BFA from the University of New Mexico in 1997 and an MFA from Yale in 2001. He's shown his work internationally in venues such as 24-7-365 in New York City, Present Company in Brooklyn, Lucien Terras in New York, Messine de Clerc in Brussels, The Whole Gallery in New York, amongst many others. His work has been covered in Art News, Harper's Bazaar, Art Forum, The New York Times, The Village Voice, and many others. He attended the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture and the LMCC Residency at the World Trade Center. He has a current show at Paris, London, Hong Kong Gallery in Chicago called As Fiction, which runs until October 28th. I stopped by Adams Williamsburg studio not far from my own apartment to talk about Catholic school, being in school when painting wasn't a thing, old bands like Brainiac, day jobs, and much more. Here's our conversation. exciting thing in the world and you go in the dark room yeah and they half the time they didn't even know what they were talking about they're just showing you cool stuff yep and it's like better than going to the movies or something yeah i think that's disappeared a little bit i do the attention span is gone so now what's left is uh i don't know a little bit of entertainment has to be thrown in there or something yeah the novelty kind of is gone there's so much going on now you know yeah I talk to, you know, when I talk to younger people, I tell them about when I was in an undergraduate school, I found the art library, you know, like where you go to the stacks oh, to yeah. see all the magazines and art books yeah. and stuff. And that was so exciting. I was like, wait, yeah. there's not only books on like, you know, Rubens and Surratt and Rothko or right. whatever, which are nice, beautiful, big books that you can look through. But also there were the stacks of Art Forum, Art in America, Art News stuff that I didn't, you know, subscribe to, but then all of a sudden I'm looking through, I'm like, who is Bruce Nauman? Right. And why yeah. is he hanging two candle heads or what? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. It like blew my mind. So I just sit there and look through that because we didn't have the internet. We yeah. weren't getting bombarded by, you know, images all the time. So you had to seek them out, you know? Yeah. The seeking out thing, I think, is like, I, I try not to be the old guy. It was like, oh, it was so much better when I was younger. But I think one of the advantages to seeking out is you, you're active in the role of it. You know what I mean? Other than Googling. Like, it's right. not everything is, like, shown to you. Like, when you would get a record when it just came out, let's say it's, like, My Bloody Valentine or yeah. something. You get that record. You live with that thing for, you know, weeks right. before the, you know, until the next record that you're interested in comes out. And you listen to it over and over again. So you really get to know it. Stare at the cover, yeah. Read all the liner notes fifty-five times. Yep. And do you did you uh, order records from Maximum Rock and Roll? I didn't. Oh, you know, I didn't come around to Maximum Rock and Roll until 
um, when I was in a band in undergrad, and like, and I started uh, DJing at the, although I was in the jazz department, but new music were the, those guys were into that stuff. Yeah. So I think I just kind of came to it a little later than other people. I wasn't quite as punk, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. It was more into indie rock stuff, but um, no, I I got records I think through the radio station. Before that, it oh, was I just see. the record store in Pittsburgh where I was growing up that had all the recommendations or whatever. Yeah, I think and I remember you saying there were really, really good record stores in Pittsburgh. Yeah, there were. And, um, and then undergrad, it was like there was a, there was a record store, but also the, uh, the radio station got stuff before anyone else would. You know, so right. like we'd get new music and you could, you could check it out. Like we'd all sit around. Or something. Yeah, like as soon as like that new record came in, we would all... Yeah, like Brainiac or something. Yeah, they would put it on vinyl in the office, and everyone would sit around and listen to it. I listened to that the other day. That's it's crazy, right? Like going back to those things. Because what was interesting about it back then um, is just so different now. So listening to yeah. it now, you're hearing both the nostalgia, but also kind of the attempt of what they're trying to make, and um, it's just so so different than the it way is. music is made now. Because it seemed, and the thing about Brainiac was they were doing electro, what seemed like electronic y right, things yeah. in there to like harder indie rock. So it was still aggressive, but it yeah. was, uh, that was like, what was the name of that really kind of punkish? But then they added um, like drum and bass to it. Was it uh, 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 the VSS? No, Atari Teenage Riot. Oh, Atari Teenage yeah. You know, like that kind of stuff, where they were melding yeah. that agro punk aesthetic with electronics, and it was like no one was yeah. doing that. Like it was new. No one yeah, could have done exciting. it more then. It was, but you listen to it now, and you're like, that's. <laughs> <laughs> it's still really good. Like Brainiac is still really good. Sad story too to that band. I don't know the story. What's I think the story the, it? maybe the lead singer or guitarist like died in a car accident. Oh, uh, but yeah, really young, terrible. so they just they couldn't. I think they're later stuff was really good yeah well I'm, I'm glad I have that I think I have two of the record I'm gonna listen to them today <laughs> it's something for president right is it Brainiac for president or something yeah and they have like really um, like these clean really graphic uh, almost like cartoony covers. covers yeah yeah right covers really meant a lot oh then. yeah yeah it was the skull it was the skeleton guy with his he was a president and he had to like the Nixon yeah. thing. Up. And then the and next one had like little alien heads on it yeah. or something. Like <laughs> and that's good stuff. Well, that's a good segue to you and growing up. I mean, obviously you were big into music. So how did, let's go back to the early days. Um, Where'd you grow up? <clears throat> when did you get into music or art or creative things? I grew up in the Southwest and moved to New Mexico when my parents split up, um, I guess it was before or around high school. And so um, it was, I didn't have a lot of access to art and music, as I was saying before, it was really like mail order punk stuff. Mm -hmm. And my sister, who's a few years older than me, um, was really into new wave music and she had a record collection. And so um, I would go into her room and she would play me records. And she was sort of obsessed with this band called OMD. And uh, we would. Orchestral maneuvers in the dark. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And 
we would listen to these records and um, you know it was just like part of growing up was listening to music and she had a few punk records and I really you know really attached uh, a lot of meaning to those the Ramones the Clash you know the classics and so I think uh, I went out and tried to find more music like that and mm -hmm. it took a while and growing up in New Mexico there was kind of like a really good healthy punk scene there so um, music was kind of how you formed your identity back then mm -hmm. and being uh, a skateboarder listening to punk music and being into art was all one thing yeah and it was never really separated so um, you know, you'd wake up in the morning, put on some whatever punk record you were listening to at the time, Operation Ivy, mm -hmm. and then go skate all day long until you're about ready to die, and then uh, go to the public library and look at art books. Yeah. And all of those things were within maybe a quarter mile of each other where I lived in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so I think that that routine of music, skateboarding, art, um, was just the beginning of how I started to think about um, my identity as a creative person. Mm -hmm. Was part of that too um, the school identity? Because I feel like a lot of times in junior high or high school, you know, the skateboard, like I hung out, with, I skateboarded and hung out with those guys and that had that relationship to art because of the creative side of it or the graphics or whatever. And it was like the group that I felt like connected to, you know, or I could relate to those guys oh, more definitely. than, you know, the jocks or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Although, you know, I think I played soccer all the way up to high school, but um, there was something about that group of people that I thought were like-minded people. And as I got a little bit older or was able to travel, you know, I was like maybe 16 or 17, I would go to California to go skateboarding and you would meet up with people and, you know, you'd meet some person wearing a Fugazi t-shirt and you already knew that you were a like-minded yeah. person. So if you needed a place to stay, the kid in the Fugazi shirt that you skated with all day was sure to put you up. Mm -hmm. And so there was, um, there was a nice community of music and uh, skateboarding and art and I never really separated any of those things apart, so it's really interesting now to to look back and, and see how that has influenced me over a longer period of time. Yeah, it's funny because I think when it comes to the fine art versus commercial art line that's drawn in the sand, like we would hit that at some point in school. Right. Or something. It became evident at some point that there is this line, but growing up, there wasn't that line. Like it was just melded together yeah right? maybe when you signed that form for your student loan for graduate school it became really serious <laughs> yeah. like okay this is what I'm gonna do um, but even at that point I remember you and I talking in grad school way back when and uh, there just wasn't a lot of painting out at that time yeah and we wanted to have careers in art and that's why we went to school and um, it seemed possible but in the general um, media, there wasn't a lot of painting at that time. Right. This is really different. You know, we're talking about like what, 1998 or something. Yeah. And I was recalling the other day how um, I think you came by my studio and you said, "Hey, let's let's go grab a juice." 
and we went to grab a juice, and we would sometimes stop by the magazine store. Oh, yeah. And yeah. there was an art forum with a painting on the cover. <laughs> and I think we were high-fiving. Like, yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> painting on the cover of art forum. It's still legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah like totally. We, we can do this. Right. This is possible. And, um, you know, things are very different now, but I just remember that feeling of just being super excited about the possibilities of painting and right. um, where it was going to go. And it's been a roller coaster for sure to see what's happened um, over time with the medium. But, uh, you know, I just, that was such a cool moment to, to be in school and you're, you know, you signed on on this giant loan and, right. and you're just all day long. I think we were talking earlier about going to the library and how important that was. And, um, you know, you study it, you're making it, you're talking about it and you're just, it's all, you're all in. Yeah. And it was then, a nice moment. Yeah, definitely. It's funny too, thinking about that early, those early school days and, and how you get into creative things, you know, mm-hmm. and then like it cycles back. I think as you get older, you go through, so you realize everything's cyclical, right? Like oh, everything definitely. happens in these cycles. And then as you get older and you see someone like Gons, you know, doing like a collaboration or something <laughs> right. with someone, yeah. and you get, you almost get nostalgic or wax poetic that like the first time you, you know, yeah. first time I was really into a skateboard was when Gons painted his own, made his know, own graphics. His own graphics. Yeah. And then it, you kind of like connect to that stuff, you know. Oh yeah, he was a great model for someone who um, it was all one thing. Yeah, you know, he was doing it all at the same time. He had this amazing video part where he's skating to jazz, mm-hmm. and at that time, every it was this transition where music was maybe going from punk or it's kind of indie music to um, hip hop. Yeah, in the videos, and Gons comes out skating to jazz, and I just thought that was so amazing, <laughs> and he's just. You know, just fully expressing himself in that moment. Yeah, and not afraid to just do his own thing, you know. Exactly. I think that was the coolest part is that everyone else was over here, and throughout his entire career, he was always sort of doing something else, but just ahead of everybody. And right. That's a nice kind of metaphor, I guess, for doing your own thing or being um, confident with your own ideas. Yeah. So in high school, when you were in that culture... Did you think to yourself, I mean, as you were getting ready to graduate, okay, this is something I want to pursue, or where did you, what was the next step? Well, um, I think it actually goes way further, like my relationship to art goes back much, much further than that, and it actually goes back to this thing that happened to me when I was a kid in second grade, and how old are you in second grade, seven years old or something? You were six, maybe, or six or seven? God, I should know that, but I don't. <laughs> I've already erased that from my mind. <laughs> uh, so I'm six or seven years old, and my parents sent me to a, um, a Catholic school, and they thought it was a better option for education. And, and you know they were right. It was a, a much better school than the public school in the area. So, um, you know, it was traditional t- uh, Catholic schools. There were nuns that were teaching the classes, and... Um, in second grade, I think it was when I first started Catholic school, and I was like sort of the odd ball out, just, mm-hmm. you know, might have gone in sort of like half semester or something. And uh, I was really into drawing, and would draw all day long, 
and in public school, they were just sort of like, that's fine, just do it. <laughs> and in Catholic school, they're like, you better learn. Um, oh, really? They were more things. regimented? Much more regimented. Yeah. And so, um, but one of the saving graces was that every month we would have art day. Mm-hmm. And art day was always around a theme of a holiday. So let's say Christmas or Thanksgiving. And this one particular time, um, St. Patrick's Day was rolling around, and uh, uh, we got the assignment to draw a leprechaun and a pot of gold. Sure. And I was psyched because I thought, you know, I, I can nail this. This is something I'm actually really excited to draw. And the rest of them were, you know, really cheesy, like a, a Santa Claus where you glue the cotton balls in right. for the coat the beard. or something. Yeah, the yeah. beard and the coat. <laughs> and it was so boring. And this one was just straight up like draw a leprechaun in a pot of gold. So I took my time and made this drawing of a leprechaun sort of jumping over the pot of gold and under a tree. And, you know, I was so proud of myself. And the uh, teacher comes around to me and uh, looks at the drawing and says, wow, hey, this is actually really good, and holds it up to the class and shows the whole class. Look what Adam did. Like, this, this is a really good re- representation of what I was talking about, a leprechaun and a pot of gold, and see the leprechaun jumping over the bottle? Probably some like motion lines or something at that time. Um, and I was just you know, full of pride, and you know, one, I think one of the kids told me, oh, it's, you're good at drawing leprechauns because your last name is Henry. Irish, so <laughs> good, at, good at drawing leprechauns. You know, there's a lot of like Went weird. Straight, straight to that. Yeah, right? just, yeah, just really bizarre. You know, anyway, I was just glad that um, I uh, succeeded in my drawing and everyone seemed to be uh, happy with it. Validation. Total validation at a new school and uh, strict school. And so um, the, we went to lunch, and when we came back from lunch, the rest of the assignment was to color in with watercolor our drawings mm-hmm. of the leprechaun. And I uh, thought to myself, well, oh, you like the drawing. Wait till you see the painting. <laughs> <laughs> and I got really excited about it. And you know, I have like a, an ongoing lifelong obsession with the color violet or purple. And I just, in my mind, there was no other way. I was only going to paint this different shades of purple. And that's the way it had to be. So I'm sort of hunkered over, you know, watercoloring my little leprechaun, all the different shades of purple that I could come up with. And at that time, you know, the the watercolor kit was pretty um, sparse. So you had to do a lot of uh, subtle mixing to get Mm -hmm. the purples. And to make it pop. And I finished my watercolor painting, and I think, you know, I like maybe sat back with my arms crossed behind my head, like, okay, wait till you see this. <laughs> and the teacher comes around and looks at my drawing and immediately flips out. And is so angry, she turned bright red, and is just thoroughly pissed. And I didn't understand what was going on. I couldn't tell if she was excited or, you know, just going to throw me out the window. So I, I didn't know what was going on. And um, she held my drawing up to the class and proceeds to explain how, how much of a smart ass I am for painting <laughs> this thing, different shades of purple, and how I was trying to undermine her authority or so. I don't remember, but it was, um, it was pretty epic. And so obviously, I made a certain kind of friend from doing that after that. And other people were like just really um, off-put by my purple leprechaun. And it continued. They called my parents, and we had to have a parent-teacher conference about 
my uh, purple leprechaun really? painting. And my parents just wanted me to do well, and you know, they really wanted me to get a good education. So um, they were just mad that I was in trouble. Right. And so I'm sitting there trying to explain, like, I'm just making what I want to make. Like, yeah. this is art day. I'm making art. I come from a creative family. So, but they were just really upset that I had caused such a ruckus in you my put yourself in that second situation. grade yeah. class. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so um, I think maybe they punished me a little bit for having you know, caused a ruckus or caused some trouble at school. But something happened in my mind after um, that experience where um, I knew that it was a really powerful thing mm-hmm. to change the color of something, to go from green to purple or something, um, caused my entire world to shift. And everyone around me, it was controversy everywhere I went for that week or whatever about just a color choice. Right. And I was just so uh, all in at that point. I, I want to do this. This is so interesting. Um, I don't know what, I don't even know what, I didn't know what being an artist was. Mm-hmm. I just knew whatever happened, me making these choices and having caused such a riff was super interesting and powerful and right. powerful yeah. and um, mysterious and uh, yeah so that was the beginning and I think after that um, maybe I kept my color choices a little more private but I continued to draw almost the entire time and by the time I got to uh, I think when I was in middle school I had a really great art teacher named Philip Nix that taught me how to draw and, uh, and then high school I had an incredible art teacher um, named Gary Myers. And this was at Santa Fe High, and uh, my art teacher in high school, it was mixed of him teaching me how to draw and paint, and we became close friends, but we would also play practical jokes on each other. Mm -hmm. And so it became all one thing, and I couldn't distinguish the difference between a a practical joke being art or a, a moldy thing of milk Right. from a, a drawing or a painting I was doing. It was all just one thing. And in a weird way, I think part of the advantage of growing up someplace where you don't have access to a lot of things is that you kind of have to make it up as you go along. Mm-hmm. And um, that was part of it, was sort of having these great art teachers and just fusing my life with with, with art making. Yeah. God, that story, though, is really um, interesting because... That's kind of like every, the root of every conflict in society, in a way. Language and... Language and <laughs> choice. Um, subverting expectations and the um, dependency on tradition or the expectations. Right. Like, oh, it's supposed to be like this, and if you bend that mold, right. you're trouble. Even your parents' reaction to it. Right. That, like, you upset the apple cart. Right. Now, whether yeah. or not... The apple cart was on fire, or the yeah. apple cart needed turning over. You did right. it, and that's the problem. Sort of like the reaction is a problem. I was just listening this morning to all the NFL talk oh, about yeah. you know the protests that happened, yeah. and people being mad at them for protesting because it's disrespecting Man, the military. I, I think I'm gonna take a knee right now. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Raise a fist, yeah. and I'm like, it's that's the whole. It's the the real issues. Sometimes it's so interesting. The real interest. In, issues sometimes get kind of displaced to a secondary reaction or 
what the expectations of what people are supposed to do in in result of something, and it gets it deflects the real issue, which is that first Absolutely. comment or the first thing yeah. becomes. And artwork's really interesting too because it's this language that floats in between. It's we're not writing essays about our society, but it's talking about right. our society. And I feel like a large group of the art viewing public their expectations are never met you know what I mean it's too insular or like right. they they just expect things to look like this or to be happy or right. nice entertaining and then artists want to like get in there and mess stuff up and you know what I mean so it's this conflict especially it's, with painting I think painting there's so much expectation well it's got that it, the history of it, it the history if you so, walk down the street and you ask someone hey do you know what art is they're probably going to say something like the Mona Lisa or mm-hmm. Jackson Pollock. And so I think that's one of the things that um, I think a lot making a painting is what are someone's expectations and how do you ease them into um, maybe a little bit more difficult conversation with that expectation or displacing that expectation. Yeah. And um, a lot of times it fails. You know, you yeah. think that you're really hitting the nail on the head and people can dismiss it as being uh, formal or just about color or something like that. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, that displacement, I think, is one of the really wonderful things that could happen yeah. when you're looking at art. And well, that's the whole reason we do it, really. Yeah. Like, if we wanted to write the essay, we could. We right. want the vagueness, in a way, because then yeah. sometimes that stimulates a longer conversation. Usually the conversation goes down the toilet or it goes the wrong way, <laughs> but you're trying to get that conversation to happen. You know right. what I mean? And it, uh, it's, imagine taking that person that you grab off the street and they say Mona Lisa or, you know, Monet, and then, you know... Show about Matthew Barney yeah, and Vaseline just show or the, something. Yeah, show them the, uh, you know, the, the Jason Rhodes show or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, just take them into something totally yeah. different and they're going to be off-put. Yeah, and the, I guess... Man, I was thinking about this the other day about how um, I've been painting for 25 years, mm-hmm. if I consider sort of after... I guess maybe starting starting in high school where I bought my own paint set and just did it by myself and was, like, painting for 25 years. And you build up a lot of... Um, I wouldn't even say it's knowledge, but data. You have a lot of painting data mm-hmm. that you carry around with you. And not everyone else has that data. And so you're still trying to communicate, and you have all of this, um, I'd rather call it data than baggage. Yeah. You have all this information, and as soon as you start painting, all that information is both there to be accessed or to be erased. And so that's one of the things that um, painting does sort of feel sometimes like a performance where you're... Um, you're putting something out there to communicate, and if you perform it well, you could always have a great conversation. And if the performance bad, the conversation is sort of like, "Okay, got it," or "That that's nice." Yeah, it's <laughs> like the worst thing that right, anyone right. could say is like, "That's nice." Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> that reaction to it. Yeah, yeah, but it's a language, and you know, imagine if you spent, you know, I don't know, fifteen or twenty years learning. A, a language that most people don't know and then you come in the room and you start speaking that language right you know what I mean I guess they would go off of your body language maybe or demeanor if they don't understand right. the the subtleties or intricacies of like the language that you're using right. you know what I mean it's weird it's like you're you're really specialized in this area of communication that most people don't know that much about 
Right. I wonder, though, if maybe it's getting a little better in terms of uh, just visual literacy is so high right now. And, yeah. and, and the way that people see things and how fast they can read something visually, obviously it has to do with our technology. But um, I wonder if some of those painting ideas have filtered in in other ways. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe they might not understand the very specific painting reference, but I think they're getting it visually. The gestalt of it is just is very heavy, and so they can they can walk in the room and and get some sort of sense of of what's there. Um, but the esoteric nature of painting is something I'm really intrigued with, but also wary of, and and that is that is kind of difficult to kind of have both of those being played at the same time. Yeah, and that's the optimistic, hopeful, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that this sort of <clears throat> speed and bombardment of images in today's world, that the, the viewer is more sophisticated or can, you know, right. digest or think about it in a different way. The flip side of that is we're hopeful that people aren't making images that are just surfacey that people can get really quick because that's the speed that because I'm sure you and I have both seen art like that yeah it's that quick read it's like okay I get it yeah. you know what I mean well, we're coming out of a time when abstraction has sort of gone through that right where it was really quick easy work <clears throat> excuse me and um, there was sort of a lack of criticism to the work more so there was a lack of criticism towards the form that right. the work was taking and so you have like a kind of market-driven, easily read type of work, and then people just get sick of it and they lump it all together. And they say, well, abstract painting has this, that, and the other problem. And I actually know the painting doesn't have the problem. The dialogue around certain types of painting within that form have a problem. Mm -hmm. And so being able to distinguish that, it's easier for artists, but when you're outside of um, your studio, it becomes a little more difficult. Yeah. Uh, that being said, one of the amazing things that has happened out of that um, strange problem is that then all of a sudden you have so much more freedom in that form because no one's paying attention to it anymore. And they right. think it's, you know, oh, this is old hat. Yeah. You know, that's, that's uninteresting. And then it becomes the most interesting in that time, I think. Yeah. Now I have an uncanny knack for making work that is never in vogue. <laughs> I remember even being back in school, people saying to me, like, really, you're going to make these paintings now? Because you remember how, like, a year or two ago, L.A. was blowing up, and it was, like, oh, work right. just like that. But I hadn't even really followed that right. work, and yeah. I felt, like, a connection was something totally different, but they were just like, yeah, this is kind of played out right now. I remember that, and I remember anything sort of hard-edged, was met with a lot of skepticism, mm -hmm. and um, because it was a easily identifiable thing, um, but there was. But now you see what so many people have done just with a hard edge, whether mm -hmm. it's representational, or abstract, or, or whatever, and it's mind blowing the variations. Yeah, mind blowing. Well, at the beginning, I think it, well, not. That's not the beginning of it, but when something some way of working finds its voice again collectively, mm -hmm. then it becomes easy to cast it off or, you know. Right. It's kind of like as it filters. It's same thing. Okay, here's a good analogy. Like Boards of Canada. Mm -hmm. You know the, the yeah, band yeah. Boards of Canada. Their sound, right, is, is pretty distinct. And it comes from somewhere. It comes from electronic, ethereal right. music. But, you know, they kind of had a different vibe to it. 
And then they spawn like scores of other boards of <laughs> right. Canada-ish yeah. music because they were so good at what right. their sound. Yeah. And then it just gets lumped or whatever. The but then fourth iteration, exactly, it's a really watered down version of it. Yeah. But then if you go, you know, fifteen years later, it kind of rebubbles. Some of that aesthetic rebubbles up. You yeah. know what I mean? And then it it becomes really interesting with time. And you're like, oh, they the possibilities weren't exhausted. They were just repeated ad nauseum to where right. people ran away from it. Same way with what you're talking about with abstraction. Yeah. I mean, I've you know, do you know the genre of music vaporwave? Yeah. So yeah. I came across that fairly recently. I don't know, it was like two or three years ago or something. And like, I, there's a whole genre. And I had known some of the people that are associated with it and knew their right. music. But I didn't realize it was this thing that lived on the internet. <laughs> And when you look at some of these bands, like you can't figure out who the people are, who's doing it. But they're, I love it. They're knee deep in like 80s funk, slowed yeah. down and, yeah. and glitchy or like computery. I don't know how to describe yeah. it, but it's just weird. Like, the, um, you know, that comes out of something, but it, it kind of gets, especially nowadays, you can bury things in the internet. Right. It, it kind of disappears for a while and then it's almost like subculture of it comes right. back up. It's Someone will rediscover it yeah. or, you know, will rediscover some aspect of it or uh, one of the band members will go on to produce a record and you yeah. really like it and you'll be like, who produced this? And then, you know, it's it's kind of amazing when that happens, especially yeah. if it's something that you didn't know a ton about. And even, even the bands that I've been listening to for my whole life, I always go back and I'm always finding new things about them. You know, and I think we... Uh, we were kind of a pre-internet uh, generation, so as we were talking earlier, we were saying that it was really hard um, to find the music. So if you found it, you really held on to it, yeah. and, and you really dug dug deep, and you wanted to know uh, who produced it, and you know what microphone they used to record mm-hmm. with, and yeah. uh, every every tiny little detail. Even if you didn't want to, there were records I had that honestly were probably just average records. But I got them. Sometimes you just had to buy stuff based on the cover. Oh, t- like yeah. you didn't, you yeah. couldn't sample it, or you couldn't listen to it on Spotify, or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, you just had to to say, well, this this band opened up for this other band, or they're right. on the same label. The same label. This right. might be cool. Yeah. And sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But you probably listen to that record. So so many of the um, bands that I've listened to for a really long period of time were things that I found uh, at the store and I went to buy something else and, and got attracted to something about their design of, of the cover or something and um, and then that was that you know and yeah. you, you gave it a try and it was just you know found something new and that was a great joy when you discovered something that you were like really excited about that right you were brought to it through the visual representation. Mercury Rev was a band that I found. Yeah. Through like I'd never heard them, and then I remember like seeing <laughs> a record cover or something. There was something about yeah. it that was interesting. I remember going to a great record store in Albuquerque called Mind Over Matter. It was a punk record store, and they had um, it was it was primarily punk and indie records, but they had another section that was kind of like experimental music and electronic music. Mm-hmm. And I, remember, I always remember walking by and seeing, uh, walking by that section and seeing Spaceman 3 record covers. Oh, yeah. Those were good. Psychedelic uh, record covers or just like this really um, hard-edged 
number three in a triangle. Mm -hmm. And I always liked it. And I remember going in and, and um, they ordered a record for me. It didn't come in. So I thought, all right, I'll take this Spaceman 3 record. <laughs> and went home and put it on and was just so blown away. Yeah. And I think that's probably that specific record or, or that, that specific band I listened to probably more than any other. It was yeah. this random thing where you're walking in the record store and you're attracted to a number three. Right, right. <laughs> no, I, I had a... Um I had a CD single of theirs, or maybe it was like an EP, and it had some live tracks on it, I think, but it was like fluorescent pink and green, yeah. and it had a pedal, like a wall pedal or something, embossed yeah. into it, and it was silver, and it was such an amazing yeah. artifact, yeah. and I was so you know, enamored by the, just the packaging of it. Yeah. Not only was the, the record was great, now let's do it over and over, but I think that had an effect on me too. It was like anytime I make a catalog or make made something that was published, oh, yeah. I wanted it to have this kind of, you know, that specialness or something. Yeah. I mean, they, I think they had a whole complete package where they really wanted it to have a certain kind of minimal psychedelic vibe. Um, and yeah, I guess like the beginning of uh, shoegaze type music also. Yeah. And I was listening to an interview with Peter Kemper, I think um, is his name. Um, I think it goes by Sonic Boom. And uh, he was talking about being really nerdy about music and going in England and finding the woman who created the sounds for Doctor, Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. and, he, and she was like a recluse. And he went and, and found her and basically learned about he doesn't say music, he says sound. He learned about sound from her. Mm -hmm. Delia, I think Delia Debershard? Debershard? I, I don't remember her name, but um, it was the woman who made this, the, the sounds for Doctor Who. And he sought her out. And he, in his, in his interview, he's talking about having all this esoteric knowledge about sound. Mm -hmm. And again, him dealing with the expectation of playing live and people thinking they understand um, the simplicity of the music, but uh, there's a lot, a lot there. I mean, he went back to the beginning of sort of synthesizer or math music and and try to build out of that. And that's something I think, um, as I found that out, or the more the more I dig into this band, the more I'm just really in awe of uh, how much is actually there, even though it sounds so minimal. Yeah. And presumably, I like I always assume those guys were on some massive mind-expanding, I believe they like, resources. And I'm like, how did they do all that other stuff with it? Is it just the producers, or like, are they? Because you would think that they're involved with all the packaging, all the like, all the exterior, like the facade of the band as well. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. amazing that they were that, like that he's going and doing field research to find old, you know, like those people, yeah, and like digging in. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, and I think they've both continued to make, um, particularly Sonic Boom records that uh, have a really strong visual element, you know, mm -hmm. whether they're weird optical illusions on them or patterns, um, that they've just continued. That's kind of an amazing all-in package, too, where it's the visuals and the sounds and very thoughtful. Yeah, and a live show. Yeah. I would imagine that's right around the time you started going to college right yeah yeah I went to um, the University of New Mexico for undergrad mm -hmm. and how was that it was great actually you know I just feel like education wise I've been so lucky because the University of New Mexico 
had an entire building for the art department and it had these different floors you know like painting on one floor printmaking on one on another one and uh, sculpture with a sculpture yard where you could weld and everything and um, one of the amazing things I had great teachers there as well um, Ellen Feinberg and Michael Cook were really influential um, but the amazing thing was that if they, if you showed interest, if you were there working all the time, the doors were open. And so they knew me. I would go weld something and run upstairs and pour some fiberglass mold and then run to the photo department and print some weird photo and then silk screening. And, and again, it felt sort of like back, back to my sort of like um, early skateboard music <clears throat> painting days. It felt like it was all one thing, and I, I think I graduated w with um, a specific, um, I, th I don't remember what it was called, but you, I graduated from the painting department um, from my school, and I think you get a double BFA with art history. But I did everything else as well as paint, and I think that was um, just so much fun. I was just running yeah. around making things. And I had people to talk to me about it. And so, you know, and they, no one ever told me, hey, but why don't you settle down and just paint for a while? Right. They were That's like, lucky at that point. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. I Actually, I think they were, they were all postmodernists, so they were just happy that I was going nuts. And well, that's the thing about awesome. certain schools, too, that aren't, it's not just an art school, or it's not an art school in New York City, or a big, right. like, that if you're a student, you're really showing, you know, interest the faculty there are excited because, you know, I think it's easier if you're in a school like Columbia or SVA or something, you just, that energy is always going to be there because people right. are going specifically for that. But if you're in a university or you're outside of a major city, they, they really appreciate students who have that drive and that curiosity, you know. Right. So you want to foster and, and work with those students. Absolutely. It was, it was really, and I had a little group of friends who were also like skateboarder artists. Mm -hmm. um, some of them uh, skated, some of them didn't, but we were all kind of this group of people who were just in that building all the time. And you have a key to the building. And, um, you know, it was just, it was amazing. It was amazing to have that much freedom. And maybe you had a psychology class in the morning and you would go paint for five or six hours and have another class and then go back and, you know, try to weld some giant yeah. piece of metal or something. It was very special, I thought. Yeah, I wonder if that even, well, I guess it does. It must be so much harder these days, though, with all the distractions, you know. And right, yeah. Like, how do you do that that studio grind with Netflix? <laughs> right. I mean, we could do with it because we yeah. were around before that, but I wonder if it's just so much harder to concentrate fully with so many awesome things going on. Yeah, there's just so, so much. There's I mean, I think so about much. that having a kid. It's like how, yeah. you know, there's that that old argument of, you know, if you're surrounded by stimulus all the time, you're a little less creative because everything's kind of like, right. you know, created for you, you know. Right. And when you're, when we were younger and we didn't have as many things, you learn to sort of create your own worlds and stuff. I mean, I know, I'm, I'm sure it still happens and it's, you know, a sliding scale, but. Nothing could be more valuable than boredom. Yeah. I think really. that's the thing is like, are, are kids really bored anymore? I guess they can be, but geez, that's <laughs> a spoiled board. <laughs> right. Yeah, they got a lot of a lot of tools and toys to be bored with. There was, there, I think that was something very specific about growing up in New Mexico was that um, 
Well, Santa Fe is, is different because you're at the base of a mountain, so you go 30 minutes and you're in mountain forest, and you go um, another 30 minutes in the opposite direction, you're in a desert. Mm-hmm. But in general, it has a kind of like beige, taupe um, color scheme, and the light is super harsh. There's and also an even, like the palette feels kind of even. Right. Lots of neutrals. And then there are pops, but they're pops that are sort of right. Arizona familiar <clears throat> pops, like that turquoise or that, you know, yeah. occasional hot pink. But it's it, it's a different palette, I think. Right. And so I think that was, um, A, one of the attractions to some sort of designs, you know, some 80s designs, specifically like skateboard designs, like bright color. Um, but being in that environment where um, maybe I didn't have a lot of access to museums or or, or um, art that would be in museums, but I was sort of making it up as I was going along, and I think that was part of uh, what was special about being in New Mexico was that I felt a little bit like I was bored sometimes, and um, so I went to the library, and yeah. you know I remember my friends and I making our own skateboard graphics, and that being really funny and ridiculous and um, just, just a part of it. Like, well, I guess maybe that's part of our, our generation's DIY uh, aesthetic was that we kind of had to make everything up. We didn't have access. Like, oh, you know, there's not, a, there's not a magazine about, I don't know, Spaceman 3. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start one. A zine. Yeah. yeah. Or, or we'll put on the show. We'll bring the band. Hey, I wanted to hear some punk rock music, and so yeah. we started a band. We started playing punk rock music, and it was terrible, but... Um, <laughs> at least we had we had some sort of like access or outlet at that yeah. point. Yeah, it kind of teaches you. So you went from that, and then you go to to New Haven for graduate school. I so. spent a couple of years in California, and um, it's all very interrelated. That when I was a kid, and I was going to California to skateboard, um, there was this like skateboard mecca called the Embarcadero, and so I'd make trips out there to go skate this spot where all the best skateboarders would go. And at the time. Um, I sort of moved out on my own and ran a, the local skate shop in Santa Fe um, in high school. And, um, and so I always just thought I was going to move to San Francisco. I was comfortable there. I knew the city. I knew people there. Also, it was like a, a very mellow vibe mm-hmm. and felt, felt like New Mexico in a certain way. And a lot of the good musicians from New Mexico moved there. And so when I got out of uh, undergrad school, I moved to San Francisco and thought I was going to stay there, go to school there, and I was there for a couple of years, and the dot-com boom happened. Yeah. And actually, I think, I was thinking about this the other day, um, you and I were pen pals. And yeah, I think that was, because I met you when you visited where I was in undergrad, yeah, right? Yeah, Penn State. I visited you. Pen pals. Do you want to explain that to people under? Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we would send music to each other through the mail and um, that's how we I think that's how we got to know each other and you had gone to Yale and I went to San Francisco and um, I got my first email address I think in California and then we started sending emails to each other and you told me how great it was um, how great graduate school was there Mm -hmm. and it sounded really really appealing and Oh, so you're going to blame it on me? It's pretty much all your fault that I'm here. Like, Brian. I'm not paying those <laughs> <laughs> That's your responsibility. <laughs> but it was, it was really, um, it was the things that you said in the email were exactly what I was looking for. The conversation. Yeah. 
there were some difficulties, you know, there were difficult ideas being passed around and that um, you felt like there was a painting community there. Serious, right? Very serious painting community. And I just, yeah, I thought that was, uh, that was great. And at the time, as I was saying, San Francisco, the the dot-com boom happened, so you had um, everyone moving in, and the place where I lived was um, called The Mission. And every day, you just saw, like, another building get sold. And um, I knew that my time there was going to be limited. You knew? You had that? Oh, yeah, definitely. You you could just see it. Do you remember the the round Volkswagen bug? Yeah, yeah. So you saw one of them, and you're like, wow, that's interesting. And then there was like seven on the street. (laughs) It's time time to go. Multiplying. (laughs) Yeah. Time to go. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. So what was your experience like on the East Coast? Was that the first long-term East Coast experience? I'd made a couple trips, um, and I think um, I didn't know New York very well. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to go to Yale to be in the painting department there because yeah. uh, I liked the teachers and I liked the philosophy. Um, and the Albers color theory class, everything just seemed to sort of fall into place with what I was interested in. And um, yeah, I didn't really know much about the East Coast. I kind of came here blind and uh, have been putting it together ever since. <laughs> snow. <laughs> right, yeah. Dealing with snow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the weather, the, the cold weather. but um, And then getting out of school was really, I think that was like one of the um, most bizarre times in my life because I just finished graduate school, you know, went to commencement and got in the truck and drove straight here. Yeah. And um, I didn't know at the time, well, moving to New York City was a shock. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with the work that I was making. By the time I left, I was making much more experimental things. And um, so it was, it was interesting to kind of want to pull back a little bit and figure out what that meant before showing. Mm-hmm. So I got a job and uh, <laughs> I worked for, I was the head of administration for the Manhattan Institute for Psychoanalysis was my first job in New York City. Wait, what? How? Uh, a friend was going there. They needed someone. I basically talked my way into it. And uh, it was a school for psychoanalysts, and I was basically like running the administrative part of it, which was you know, scheduling and stuff like that. Um, and uh, had a residency in the World Trade Center through um, LMCC, LMCC yeah. when LMCC first started. And shortly after I left the World Trade Center, I still had that job at the School for Psychoanalysts. Uh, 9-11 happened, Mm -hmm. and then it was just, you know, a really different time. But having moved to New York, not really knowing the city, working for a school uh, for psychoanalysts, having a studio in the World Trade Center Mm -hmm. was so crazy. Yeah. And I was definitely not ready to show my work publicly. I just felt like I needed to mature and figure out where my life was before I wanted to do that. And I guess, well, having that gig, having a job is good because then you can at least get situated, right? Yeah. Like, it wasn't that immense immediate pressure, like, you know, the city's crashing down on you. I mean, bad pun, but you know what I mean? Like, that things are really gripping tight. So you were able to at least get some roots into living here. Yeah, and what what it was like to 
go to a job and not talk about art yeah and and learn about um what it means to have a school for psychoanalysts or something like that which was um which was incredible and Mm -hmm. shortly after um 9-11 happened i had to sort of reassess things again and then ended up working for a law firm where i worked for about seven years now did you get that gig based on the job that you you had again it was kind of random um i was dating someone at the time um whose parents owned a law firm, and they asked me to come in and help. They were getting ready for a big trial, and they asked me to come in and help um, do some things, and uh, it just kind of clicked. You know, mm-hmm. I think that uh, I kind of have a tendency for detail-oriented things. Yeah. So it clicked, and, and before you knew it, I was just sort of one of the regulars there and, and uh, worked a, a normal job, you know, I rode nine the subway, to <laughs> nine, yeah, to, yeah. nine to five for seven years. Was it downtown? It was on 51st Street. Oof. Yeah, so Midtown. Yeah. And, uh, but that was also super interesting. Again, like, how do you, I didn't know anything about, um, they specialize in securities fraud, so I didn't know anything about securities fraud. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn everything. And it felt like coming out of school, maybe learning about this, the, the school for, psychoanalysis and then having to learn everything about securities fraud I just felt like I was in school over and right. over and over and over again but learning um, new things each time right and then you know fast forward a little bit to when I'm just able to be in my studio and make paintings I almost sort of uh, built that into my practice when mm-hmm. I'm like trying to learn things all the time and, yeah. um, different whether it's a technique or or um, an older idea and sort of reintroduce it or something like that. Conveniently timed, I feel like, to people our age where you start to really enjoy the process of learning. You, right. th- you know what yeah. I mean? All of a sudden it's you start true, like, yeah. getting really interested in like subjects you yeah. never cared about. Right, you know? yeah. And like it's just that, I don't know if it's yeah. nostalgia of learning or just being more open and curious about more things and a little less kind of like, you know, the yeah. vision being a little less centered on just making work and right you know and then I think you realize that all this life experience filters into your work or it can you know diversify your work in a way absolutely yeah so you know like the question people often and still ask is like oh does, does having a kid change your artwork and then when I first like the first couple of years after I was no I'm just tired you know like that was the answer but then you realize oh yeah you kind of see the world differently right. and things matter differently and you understand things in a different way so yeah every kind of like uh, platform or yeah. step or change that you make can if you're open to it can really you know come right. into your work or you're thinking about making work I remember being um, a kid and um having some cousins that were younger than me and trying to teach them, you know, their colors or something. Mm-hmm. Like, they're practically babies and they're learning how to talk. Like, this is blue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is red. And you don't realize until you're um, mature how odd and profound it is to start to build language in that way. Yeah. And language around color. And how color is a system and language is a system and how um, they're very oddly inter- interrelated and um, I could only imagine, you know, teaching your son, I don't know, like you were, you were talking about soccer and teaching your son how to play soccer, and, mm-hmm. and then you having to slow down and um, pick apart 
how to do something and then teach it to someone else is yeah it's an incredible experience yeah I think it it, it really changes your ability to communicate and it doesn't necessarily go into the artwork per se but I think it become you become a, a deeper person you know or you, you, have, you can make deeper connections with more things I guess right I mean, when I got out of school, I went into the bunker, you know, the, the post-education. I'm not talking to anyone for a while. <laughs> and I was literally in my studio for, you know, like seven years maybe, where I didn't really wow. get out much. You know, I was just kind of like, you know, a hermit. I just worked all the time. You had a lot happening, though. There was a lot happening was when you got out yeah, and yeah. showing and it was interest and... Yeah, that um, kind of helped, you know, keep me in there. And right. working. Not that I, I kind of have that drive anyways, whether I'm showing or not, to just be working all the time. Right. Like I was doing no. it in school, and um, I don't do it so much. To, I mean, now I have, like, office hours, quote-unquote, because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm so busy with things, but yeah. I still come to my work in a very, like, kind of blue-collar. I'm going to work as hard as I can, do as much as I can, and learn through it. Um, I but, do remember being in school together... And there were many times when everyone else sort of uh, left in the evening. And it was like you and I and maybe one other person yeah. that grounded out till about 2 in the morning and then would be there at 8 a.m. Yeah, because I had that thing. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. I had the thing where in undergrad I was working late nights all the time and working overnights. Yeah. And then I remember between the first and second year of grad school, I was the liaison to the visiting artist. Oh, Which meant extra I, work. Yeah, I had to be up early a lot to pick yeah. them up at the train station. Yeah. So this whole like painting until five in the morning, I wasn't going to pull an all-nighter and then go show up. Yeah. So, and then I realized well, it's actually a lot quieter and I have more energy in the morning. So mm-hmm. I kind of converted remember, yeah. to an early morning schedule, which was really nice because you get, you get good things done first right. thing in the morning. So, right. uh, But yeah, I tried to you know work as much as possible. And it was just kind of, you know... Um, I think I think I you ingrain that kind of like work ethic into yourself, you know. Right. It's, it's a good thing. But um so when you were when you got out of school, moved here, it took you a little while with the job and then you started to find your groove. I mean, is that do you feel like you hit back into the studio at a fever pitch at a certain point? You know, this kind of incredible thing happened. I, I should probably stop saying that things are incredible because <laughs> to the outside it's probably oh and then that happened and but um to me, it was incredible that the law firm decided to move upstate, mm-hmm. um, and they asked me if I wanted to continue working, but I would have to commute, and I thought, you know, this is a really good time. I've been here for seven years, and they were really great to me. You know, it was very, it was a good job, and I could take time off whenever I wanted. So I did do residencies and come back, or I would say, oh, I'm working on a project. I need a, a week or so, but um, they were very good to me. And I thought about it, and I realized that um, it was probably time to take a risk. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they moved. They were very nice to give me some severance, and I used that severance basically to crank in my studio. Yeah. And uh, by the time the severance was running out, I already had my first show, and the ball was rolling in terms of being able to make a living. Yeah off the work and so um, y- you could never plan this you know you would never sit down and be like okay now this is how it's all gonna happen but um, it was nice it kind of just happened naturally 
Yeah, it's funny because when people ask that, you know, like, well, what do I do? How do you make work? You really That's a tough question. I always say, just work really hard. Yeah. And put yourself in the opportunity to have things happen. You know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. some people will say, like, students will say, well, can I be? Can I make work? And be an artist, like a working artist with a career, and live in whatever small town or whatever. It's like uh, you could because it's cheaper. But if you really want people to see your work, right, and you want to be community. involved in that community, you, it it's probably good at least to start there or to try to get into that community somehow. Whether it's commuting or social media, anyway, you know. But it really there is no answer to it. But if you're working your butt off and in the right place at the right time, you know, yeah. then you have a chance, I guess. Yeah. And then you have to, even once you get that chance. Then and then the just, real work starts. Yeah, <laughs> then you just have to grind it out and just keep going and going yeah. and going. I've had, you know, quite a few uh, mentors or older artists who've been around the block a few times just say, you know, you just have to stay, stay making work, right. stay relevant or yeah. connected and be part of the dialogue. Keep that the ideas fresh. It's not always going to be easy. Right. It's There's going to be ups and downs or whatever, but if you stick with it, you know, you're there. At least right. you're in the conversation. Right. Which is, you know, that's really what it's about. I mean, you, you want to just still be making work and people to go see that work. Absolutely. No matter how that's getting done or how, you know, tricky it is to make it happen. So much of um, <clears throat> showing is again dealing with this expectation so if you have an exhibition and someone sees your work they're immediately have their in their mind when they see your second show mm -hmm. or if they've seen a one painting by you they immediately have it in their mind when they see the second painting or group of paintings and um, that's something that's a really difficult I remember sort of going through this okay now now what do I do um, because there's an expectation there that was heavy. Uh, but as you were saying, the only way out of that was to grind it out and yeah. make like 50 paintings, throw them all away and be like, okay, now I know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, imagine if someone said to Picasso after his like second show, you know, well, I really like what you were doing in that first show. Why Can you go you back to go the back blue period, that? man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he just stayed there, you know? Yeah, right. But it's not easy. To, to push and to keep changing and you know evolving and right. you know you'll get the people who say well I kind of like that early stuff you made <laughs> you know what you're not sitting there making the same thing over and over right. again so I, I don't know if um, we had started the podcast when you were mentioning this but you were saying about how things were sort of cyclical particularly mm -hmm. in the in the in painting practice and I totally agree with you and I think that's one of the things that um, I find very freeing is that if you can go back to your older ideas and reintroduce them in a, a fresh new way, yeah. and as soon as they start feeling stale, you know, move on mm -hmm. and, and try something else. But um, knowing that it's always in the background there, and it, you, it might be reintroduced in a different medium or, or in a completely different form, but um, I like the idea that your ideas don't really go away, they just develop slowly over time, and you loop, you loop back into them. Yeah you reintroduce them in, in interesting ways. Yeah, I found, you know, like the show that I just hung in Japan, there's there's some work in there that responds to earlier work that I've done, but it's painted in a different way, and it's within a different 
context of what's going on in society today. So I think where I might have fought that in the past, it's become almost like a new door opening in a way. Oh, right. Yeah. But uh, I, I think, you know, you can't fear that, you know, but... And we know whether we're beating a dead horse or whether we're reconnecting to something, <laughs> you know, like, you, right. you know, if that's happening or not. Well, yeah. what do you, so what do you, I mean, I know you've, you have some new stuff in here, but what, do, I mean, what have you been working on and what are the thoughts behind the current work that you're working on? Um, I have a uh, show that just opened in Chicago at um, a space called Paris, London, Hong Kong. And um, it's a very intimate space, so I had the wonderful opportunity to have like a one idea show. Mm -hmm. And I was very excited about that. Um, it's kind of maybe ridiculous to describe it <laughs> right now, because no one would understand. Um, but uh, I really love the idea of having this little intimate setting, one idea, very clean, and um, in and out and I think the response has been really nice that um, because it is a sort of one idea show it um, it translates and um, it communicates quite well and I have in three weeks a show opening in Palma de Mallorca Spain um, at a gallery called Lundgren um, and that's a larger show mm -hmm. and so I think there's maybe 15 or so works that I shipped I probably won't hang them all and um, there is a, a video that will also be shown with them. Nice. Have I seen videos of yours before? I don't think I have. You know, I think that I've only shown video in Europe, uh -huh. which is is interesting. Um, Strategic think, or coincidental? I think it's it's very specifically coincidental. And I, the one, I think maybe the last one I did was at the gallery I work with um, in Brussels, Messen de Klerk. Uh, where they had this beautiful video box made that um, is basically a box that comes out of the wall and you sit in the box and there's a slot for your legs to go through. Whoa. And I saw that thing and I was like, I have to use this. It's just too perfect. Yeah. And um, at the time I was researching cave paintings and being, <laughs> being you Sorry, know, that's a... seeing that... <laughs> It just sound. I, I didn't think it was going there. That's, right, that's but, but you <laughs> know, the time the, I was researching cave paintings. I was. I was like, <laughs> so what, when, when did painting first start? You know, deep, and, deep cut. Um, but uh, I think the reason was there was a, a a painting, cave painting that was found in Indonesia that predated the paintings in in both uh, France and Spain. Mm -hmm. And so I was in Brussels, saw the video box, and. It's just like, you know, Plato's cave. All this stuff started like going through my mind and I basically made a video um, that fit into this video box. And then I think a year later they renovated that part of the gallery and got rid of it. So I think I was the last person that got to show in that situation. And similarly in Spain, there was a situation where there's a back room that is absolutely perfect for a video idea I had. And so maybe it's really that the, um, the spaces um, allow for this other type of work to be shown. Yeah. Being flexible, mm -hmm. working in the space. Yeah, the opportunity, the architecture, or whatever, just presents the opportunity. Yeah, it's really nice too to see because you know, I'm dating back for a while now that I've seen your work since you've been here. It's like is that connection, that early connection to color, and the phenomenon of like the interpretation of color and how that's still seemingly a big part of your work. 
yeah, it's just an ongoing thread. And it's, um, the more I dig into it, and the more I research about it, and the more I read about it, um, the more it just sort of unfolds into this um, giant labyrinth of, of thought. And in the beginning, it was really um, maybe from an Albers school. And then I read uh, Theory of Color by Guta and was so blown away by this book and started to introduce ideas about color psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, from that, found Wittgenstein's uh, notes on color. And it's just this thing where the more you dig into it, I, I mean, I find a book every three weeks or something that has some other take on what's happening with color or how, we, how it relates to language or um, perception, uh, cognition. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting that people could, could use it pejoratively and say, oh, th- that works about color. Yeah, but to me, it's sort of like this really deeply um, human uh, experience that sort of crosses all boards. You know, like how do you find planets? You know, what color does it make? What color does the light make? And that tells you the distance of it. Or you go to the doctor, and they say your eyes are yellow. You have jaundice or something. You know, it just it sort of goes through all fields. Yeah. And for that reason, I just I think I've just been obsessed with it. Yeah, I was reading that about the mantis shrimp, you know that thing? Oh, right, yeah. It always blows my mind. It's like, well, we're kind of only seeing what our eyes are allowing us to see, color-wise. Yeah. There's a lot of other stuff out there. Yeah. Speaking of cyclical, it's nice to know it's comforting the cyclical return of the construction outside of your studio. (laughs) What else do you listen to while you're working besides the grinder, the metal grinder? Mostly because my studio's in Williamsburg, I don't think I've ever not had construction around me. It's a permanent installation. Pretty much, yeah. It's like the the city is just changing around me so quickly. Um, When I come to the studio, um, it depends on what I'm working on, but there'll be days where I just want silence mm-hmm. and I won't listen to anything but then there are sort of the uh, times when you're working on a show and I have a tendency to find an album that goes with the show yeah I do and, that too and we'll just listen to that thing over and over and over and over again while I'm creating the show it's, isn't it like a little almost like justification or it like gives you like yeah this too you know like it's like supporting documents for what you're thinking about it is, and after you listen to it so many times, you've, you know, you've found every small little um, detail about the music. You just, you've, you've heard it all, and then at that point, it just actually clears my mind, and I'm able to think. Yeah. And so it's almost like, if, if I put this on, it takes out all the other thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, so music is you know, actually a weird tool in that way. Yeah, I totally can relate to that. But then you you know you look back at your own work or you look back at your shows and I can't not hear those songs. I do the same thing. Oh, I, well, I often <laughs> title shows after the stuff that I'm listening to. You know what I mean? Right. Which really cements yeah. it or seals yeah. the deal. Or I collaborate with a musician who is doing work that I'm thinking about. You know what I mean? Like that well, kind that's of. That's really intertwined. It, yeah, it's uh, unshakable. Like it's just part of it. But yeah, I, I love that. I feel like it enhances the depth of. You know, I and I always get this feeling like no one probably knows Millions Now Living Will Never Die is this record or right, the yeah, Jehovah's like, Witness oh. or like <laughs> yeah. I guess you Google it, but I think 
you know, other people might be like, well, that's a different title, or you know. I like that. I I, I knew the nod to Tortoise mm-hmm. um, when I think you had a show titled um, Yeah, yeah, in Berlin somewhere. a long time ago. Yeah, and um, I like that reference. It was almost like, um, oh yeah, it's like, I know, I know how much you like that record. And I was like, this is this is really nice. Yeah, it's just you know, I I think it's exciting to connect outside of just the work that's in the gallery and to like right. have some sort of other reference to it because I often that's what I'm inspired by you know right um, but I would imagine music has that connection to you too definitely I think that um, as we were talking earlier uh, music is so uh, a part of how we formed our identity mm-hmm. from, from our generation that it's also forming the identity of the work that I'm making and uh, I did a show in Brussels I guess 2013 and um, the show was titled Repetition, Repetition, and there was lots of pairings and um, things sort of being repeated throughout the show. And this is something that I've used for a long time. And I was like, I'm just going to listen to Philip Glass, mm-hmm. and that's all I'm going to listen to while I make this show. And I drove everyone around me crazy, I think, because it's sort of the <laughs> tape loops. Coriana Scott's case now. Yeah, or, or Glassworks or something. It's like this, these tape loops, and it's like the same chord sort of like being... Going just basically like going up and down, mm-hmm. um, and it, it was amazing. You know, I think that uh, I I just found like a kind of nice place where the music and the art um, were sort of happening simultaneously for me. So um, selfish, though, for your neighbor. You know, all you care about <laughs> is you and your artwork and not your neighbors, <laughs> the monotony. Yeah, like you can imagine, like that music is so repetitious. But you can imagine listening to repetitious music repetitiously mm-hmm. <laughs> and how that yeah. might become complicated um, but you know I would just put the headphones on and sometimes just but at night you know you're working and you're just like I really want to feel this I want to feel the sound a little bit yeah um, the show in Chicago too uh, something happened unexpected where um, I was trying to make a certain texture with the paint and there were these large flat fields of color and I was trying to figure out how to paint these large flat fields of color so that it would be interesting, um, but not gimmicky or um, too effectsy. So uh, I could have sprayed them with a large air gun and mm-hmm. it'd make a perfect flat field. Um, but I chose a small, really tiny air gun and sort of laboriously had to fill in. And it took forever. The paintings aren't huge, but they're sort of medium sized. And so you could imagine like a three quarters of the painting, you know, 30 inches square or something mm-hmm. with a teeny tiny airbrush or air gun. Just like dot matrix style? Going back Just and going forth. back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until finally it's solid. And I, um, I really liked the way it kind of made the color fluctuate ever so subtly. Mm-hmm. And I hung the show and I was sitting there and the, the person, Dan Devening, who um, curated me, into the show or carried me into the space um, and I were talking about it and he was saying wow that purple is really moving around all over the place it's just um, kind of ebbing and flowing and I realized that I was listening to um, a lot of Spaceman 3 when I was making that painting and in particular these two songs that have massive amounts of tremolo yeah. and, in, and I just at that moment I was like okay this is exactly what I did with the colors I made tremolo <laughs> right. on and on canvas. Right, and so it, it fluctuated or it oscillated in the same way that the sound would when you were using a tremolo pedal. Um, 
And uh, it just made a lot of sense to me that I was sort of transferring a kind of music idea or a sound, a sonic idea into a visual one. I think you should try to run your spray gun through a tremolo effects pedal. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then do the big muff painting or the, yeah, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the, the digital delay the, Yeah, the DD3. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there, should be, there should be a group show yeah. that's about the digital delay pedal. Yeah. The DD3. It's you cool. could do it. Yeah. <laughs> See, maybe. Who's listening right now? Curate that. Hey, you got remember the old DIY days. You have to take that right. upon yourself. No one's going to do that delay show unless you do it. Right. That's true. And you will know how to do it best. It's true. I've been working on a curatorial project for a little while, and it's um, a combination of uh, concrete and systems painting. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. It's like I want. I want to see this work, and I know a few people who could borrow some of this work. That's hard to get. Um, so that's something for the future that um, I'm really, really excited about. Because it's like, I want to make my mixtape. I want to make that yeah. um, that group of work that I want to see, that I'm not seeing. I want to see that in a, in a show. See, it it all comes back to like us doing stuff that we did as a kid and right. having an excuse to do <laughs> yeah. it when you're like 40 years old. Yeah, the zine culture. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like what makes it all, you know, I don't know, you connect to those early days, it's you know, true. when it's yeah. exciting and you want to get that back all right. the time, I feel like. Cool. Well, thanks for having me over. It was great to, to like talk, talk. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Sit down. Thank it's been you for a while. having me on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. My pleasure. It's been great. Sound and Vision is produced, recorded, and facilitated by myself, Brian Alfred. The introduction was recorded by Michael Lovett of the band Niska Lines. You can also catch him performing in his band Metronomy. The intro-outro music is by Sean Seymour from the band Lullatone. Please subscribe, rate, and review Sound and Vision on iTunes. You can find studio snapshots and additional information at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find more information about my own paintings and animations at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening and supporting this podcast, and thanks to all the artists who share their stories with me.